This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. You are listening to Live from Ukraine, a highly experimental podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, featuring, generally speaking, Ukrainian voices on the current conflict. Uh, Today's guest is something of an exception, uh, an honorary Ukrainian, I think, to be sure, but joining us, I think, live from Brooklyn. Is that right, Terrell? Uh, and uh, and as you can hear, uh, not an, uh, not Ukrainian. Uh, so let's start with uh, uh, how you got into the field of 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 Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and uh, how you came to be uh, adopted uh, by uh, the the nation of Ukraine as kind of a uh, 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 a spokesman for and analysts of 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 its cause in this conflict, uh, despite not being Ukrainian. Right. Thank you. I first, I appreciate the invitation. Uh, greatly appreciate that, and thank you all who have come on to listen uh, to me speak. And I hope that you all get something out of it. Now, I started off uh, ironically in this field in Russia. I was at a, or I was invited to participate in a uh, summer program at an orphanage in the uh, a town called Sviestroya, which is about six hours south of St. Petersburg. This is in 2001. And the reason why I was in this orphanage was because I was pretty much uh, put there on purpose by the uh, administrators of a program that I applied to because I chose all the black places. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. It was around black people all my life. And and on the application, uh, I picked all the black places and then it said Russia went and it was, you know, a positive experience. And uh, I want, I said, OK, I wanted to devote myself to this field. And then I uh, applied to the Peace Corps and was accepted to uh, be an English teacher in Georgia, picked up Georgian language. And um, from there, got a graduate, went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, where I got two masters in in um, journalism, the other one in Russian, East European, Eurasian studies. And that's when I got developed my fascination with Ukraine and with kind of Fulbright went from there. Now, uh, that's your bridge version. Um, but it started off there, at least scholastically. And over the years, I've just developed my own style of writing about and uh, talking about this part of the world with, with audiences. Yeah. So there's a lot packed into there. You, you describe it as a, as the abridged version. Uh, but, but let's start with Georgia for a minute. Cause, uh, you know, for like Ukrainian and, and Russian are closely related languages. They're both Slavic, East Slavic languages. Uh, Georgian is not a closely related language. And so, you know, when when y- y- your language skills here are kind of extreme, what languages do you, 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 you say you picked up Georgian? Uh, that's uh, not so easy to do. No, not at all. So my my language acquisition is still ongoing. So I am, you know, I, I, I also started learning Russian during my Fulbright, and I'm still learning uh, that language. I take I take this, and this summer I will be in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine, where I'll be learning uh, Ukrainian language as well. So 
I uh, so those are the and then of course George and those are the three. Well, it's George, it's George and, and Russia and the Ukrainian will start this. Um, it will start in the summer. And so what's what's also interesting with language is I started learning relatively late. I'm 42 years old. People think I'm younger than I actually am, but I picked up the language just late. And again, it's something I'm still learning. And, you know, I think one of the, you know, one of the reasons why I go, I stay over there so often is that, so I can't help. So I can learn and improve on it, but it's basically those two and the three I'm picking up. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wish I had uh, that kind of a gift for, for language acquisition. Cause uh, you know, one of them is hard enough for me. Um, <laughs> so you um, are uh, uh, w- one of the really interesting things about your your Twitter feed to me in the month since since uh, February 24th has been, uh, first of all, the degree to which you relate the uh, Ukrainian national experience to the African-American experience and B, the degree to which this has really intense resonance for a lot of Ukrainians uh, who, you know, I, I would not have expected necessarily to uh, identify that strongly with the African-American experience. And so I'm, I'm just interested for your thoughts on that is, you know, um, I, I understand Ukrainians are, are very sensitive to this, this idea that their experience can't really be colonial because it's not, you know, because it's sort of white on white colonialism. But um, but I'm I'm fascinated by the degree to which uh, there is this kind of mutual identification uh, uh, that you describe and clearly is reflected in the way a lot of uh, Ukrainians respond to you. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that question. I, I, so much of my context comes from how people interact with me. Mind you, I listen, I'm born black as far as I know, I'm going to die black. And, but you have to keep in mind, it, it's people's curiosity towards me and them asking me about race questions, which I have no problem answering. And so these are Ukrainians themselves who draw on my experience as a black person and seek that relational dialogue. Uh, that's something that has consistently happened with me, not only in Ukraine, but in Georgia, uh, Armenia, um, and many other Eastern European countries. And, you know, the way, the reason why I developed an interest with a, a race context is I think once you look beyond your own experiences and you start looking at, you start studying the oppression of the, let's say, the Ukrainian. Well, it started off in Georgia, actually. Um, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, as, you know, in the blackest city in the States of America, I I just never, I, it sounds silly, but I always thought, quote unquote, white people got along with each other. And when I went to Georgia, the country, of course, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I just started when you would hear Georgians talk about, oh, you know, use words like oppression and use words like abuse, um, racism. Um, and I'm, the racism I'm referring to is being a person from the Caucasus in, you know, Moscow. Uh, that I didn't, 
I didn't get the context because I'm thinking, okay, you're white, you experience racism. And so it just, I went down an intellectual path of really understanding how race functions outside of America. And I think that most human beings, they understand things through visceral experiences, what they feel, what they see. And I, and, and I, and I look at the context of race uh, in Russia, you know, towards Ukraine, because that's something that a lot of Americans can understand. And most Americans have not been allowed or been empowered to have these types of conversations that we're having or to be some black person that grew up in the hood of Detroit and to get multiple degrees in this field. And so they're not going to be. So one thing that people do understand is race because it draws people closer to, you know, to understanding them as human beings. It's been something that was very effective for, for me uh, throughout my and I'll close up by saying throughout my career, you know, when I would draw these parallels, which ironically are are not new conversations. I think they're new to certain people. But I, you know, I got I experienced some criticism for some of the articles that I've written, you know, years ago. And now given Putin's own rhetoric and his own genocidal language, it's coming full circle now. But I've always found race to be something discussed because you know, I think people think that it's only black people or people of color are obsessed with it. I think as we've seen over the past few months, Putin looks at ethnicity. He looks at, you know, to me, he talks to you about Ukrainians like they're white trash. Um, that's that's the sense I get from walking around Ukraine. That's the sense I get from talking to people. And I just think the parallels have been effective and they work. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I've been struck by... Uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, so one was I first became aware of your Twitter feed because a Ukrainian friend uh, uh, pointed it out and said, you know, this guy gets us. Um, and, you know, was ref was referring specifically not just to your, your being a, a, a Ukraine and Eastern Europe analyst, but to the he, she was referring very specifically to the parallels that you were drawing along racial lines. Um, but the second thing is, I just watched over over the months since how Ukrainians interact with your Twitter feed, and I and I'm very struck by the degree of identification, um, uh, not just from your side but from theirs. I think it's just a really interesting. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic and an interesting reflection of the way Ukrainians see themselves in relation to Russia. If it's not, but you know, if, I think it, for me, even though intellectually I'm developing a framework fairly recent, because of how I look, people have been interacting with me like this since I've been in a region, which has been since 2003 in the case of Georgia. So I, for to a certain extent, I presumed that everyone got this similar type of interaction. But in the Georgia's case, uh, they were considered the black, you know, I would constantly be reminded that they're considered the blacks of this former USSR space. Um, and even though I didn't understand it then, I was having the conversations and people would, really they would they would say that and then say well Terrell you can I'm pretty sure that you can understand right and again even though I didn't un understand the context I was always engaged in these things and then when it came to Ukraine I would have old white you know old Ukrainian men come up to me and talk and, and, and use language like oppressor and you know the Russians want us to be a colony so these are, I've always had people interact with me that way and that 
informs so much of what I do, of, of how I write. But I think the main thing is that people feel like they have they have a they have intellectual diversity and range in how they can have these conversations. Where I think in the past the conversations have been limited, and I think for Black people, I have another friend of mine. Her name is Kimberly St. Julian Varnon. She does a lot of work around Brittany Griner and race and George and in the former USSR as well because she's a historian. But I think that we've also not been given permission to bring our diverse experiences into the dialogues. And so now we are, and I think that the field, and I think that the analysis is better because you have more people from different backgrounds um, figuring out how to, to deal with the issues of the world. Super interesting. So I am... I was listening to the radio this morning and uh, the Financial Times' podcast was uh, trying to describe how the war was going at this point and described it as kind of grinding progress on the Russian side in the East. Uh, And they didn't make any reference to the reciprocal grinding progress that the Ukrainians are making in the South. I'm interested, but I, I thought the account was was interesting because it it kind of gave this sense that I think a lot of people share of okay, so the initial Russian uh, uh, thrust uh, ambitions were repulsed very decisively, and now they've kind of seized some territory in in. Uh, Luhansk or a lot of territory in Luhansk and some in Donetsk. Um, and we're kind of grinding toward a stalemate. I have this instinct that that is actually the wrong way to look at it, but I'm interested in your, uh, in your sense if, if the Financial Times had called you this morning and said, so how, how's the war going? What would your, you know, uh, you can take more time than they would have given you, but how would you describe the state of it right now? Well, that's a good question. It also it depends what angles you're looking at. So, I, I would say that relatively speaking, though it, it is dragging on, but I think this ultimately in Ukraine's favor because one, they have the will to fight. Uh, when I was one, one of the things that I saw even leading up to the war was every single person willing to pick up any arm, if it's not arms, rocks, whatever, to fight. And then there's this emergence of Zelensky. No one thought that he would be the wartime president that he is. And so there are a number, because before the war, there are a number of uncertainties. Number one uncertainty, and I think uh, miscalculation was how, I think people were, were were thinking that Ukraine's military was still operating like it was in 2014. It's not. Um, the next stage is how many, how, how much will our sanctions regime increase? So, you know, there's this, um, and the major thing too is energy uh, with with the oil and gas. I know that the European Union has uh, made some decisions on the oil, but in regards to gas, um, that will take that will take a long term commitment, in which Europeans uh, will have to feel some pain. And they haven't demonstrated that they're really willing to go that far yet. Um, it, it depends on the continued support of the uh, you know of military hardware to Ukraine. And so, the key is how long can Ukraine resist? without being forced into any concessions. And that sentence seems to be in Ukraine's favor that they are willing to make a long-term commitment. So does the West. So, but again, I think how will it go? 
it greatly depends on how committed Europe is to squeezing Putin and, you know, energy is a part of it. And because there is some resistance there, um, I don't know, it's, 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 it's uncertain, but I will say this. I think that if the only thing that Russia can do right now is rely on artillery, right? Um, and they do have a few, and obviously they have territory. In fact, some of my friends are in occupied territory now, but there is, yeah, I want to keep rambling, but there's a will to fight. And I think that's the main thing. And, and there's continued Western support. But again, the sanctions, I think that um, the more they're willing to squeeze Russia, particularly around gas, um, um, that'll break it. But who knows? Yeah, so I'm curious how you assess our own government's performance in this. You know, it's a it's a complicated story because we're we're Ukraine's principal backer in terms of of uh, arms, in terms of money, in terms of all kinds of things. Uh, and yet there have been uh, repeated, you know, suggestions that we've moved too slowly, that we haven't uh, done enough, and also that we've done too much and we're going to precipitate World War III. And so give us your, your assessment of the Biden administration here. Is it, is it too much, too little, or about right in, in terms of uh, what they have and haven't done. Well, thank you very much. So, so all things being equal, I've got a Biden administration A. Uh, for one, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that beyond well, militarily, but diplomatically especially, um, it, the sanctions, for example, are strongest when both Europe and United States are, are unified in that. And so it's not just the administration juggling things on our end. Uh, it has to juggle its relationship with Brussels, EU, NATO. And so that job is a very difficult one. I'll certainly say that their response is much better than that of the Obama administration and the complete just jumbling of it by the jumbling of our relationship with Russia via the Trump administration. So the <clears throat> so so I think the, so I would say the main thing that the Biden administration needs to focus on instead of messaging. So a lot of people, given the pandemic, you have this uh, the monkeypox um conversation emerging uh, inflation here uh, and people are you know job job loss so that so so people don't really understand why these billions of dollars are going to ukraine i think that the administration's conversations um their dialogues could be better i had a uh, a briefing with the nsc i'm not going to i can't say exactly what was the conversation but i will uh say that one of the things that uh that I suggested was People need to have a we need to have more conversations about why it's important to invest in Ukraine. Uh, why is it important to send millions of dollars and military aid so that the Ukrainians can be the guardians of, of NATO, as many people there in the country uh, describe. And it's a great opportunity to talk to people about what's about national security, what that means. Uh, a simple way that I explain it is we can either send arms or we can send troops, you know, U.S. troops. Uh, simplified that way, sometimes people get it. But uh, as far as diplomacy, uh, I, I think that the Biden administration is doing better, as best as it can. Um, we could have sent um, could have sent fighter jets to Ukraine sooner. Could have done a number of things sooner, um, but you know, better late than never. But again, I think the number one issue is is messaging, and I think that 
FDA administration does not do a better job of messaging, then it makes it easier for some other members of Congress to misconstrue why America is there. They'll have misplaced blame, um, blaming of NATO um, and, and pushing Russian propaganda. Yeah, so I, I, I actually want to focus on this point for a minute because, you know, there is this third stream of thought in the United States, which uh, is typified by uh, it has a strain on the left, uh, the and it has a strain on the right, um, which, you know, this weekend, um, Matt Gates and uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene were were pushing, but it also has a strain in the center, which is kind of the New York Times's uh, editorial sense that we kind of need to start getting Ukraine ready for the fact that we're going to push them into major land concessions. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of people who don't accept the premise that you just laid out. I, from whatever political point of view they come from, some of them quite respectable. And I, I'm interested in, uh, you know, I'm going to frame this argument, which I very, very deeply don't believe as honestly as I can, um, and I'm going to kind of bite my tongue while I do it. But the argument goes something like this. Hey, you know, this is Russia's sphere of influence, and uh, we kind of antagonized them by accepting a bunch of uh, Eastern European countries into NATO. Um, and what we really should do at this point is draw a line at NATO and not antagonize them further and, you know, throw Ukraine to the wolves uh, in the meantime and not, you know, sort of have a have an understanding with Russia about where the line is. I think this argument is very, very deeply offensive to the sovereignty of the Eastern European countries that sought to join NATO. It wasn't like NATO conquered them or anything. Uh, and it's very offensive to the Ukrainians. But none of that seems to, um, uh, to uh, you know, to move the New York Times editorial page or the hard left in this country or the hard right. And I'm, I'm interested just for your response to it. What's the, what's the answer other than morality? to, uh, or is the answer just morality, to the argument that, hey, uh, realpolitik says the Russians win in this space? Well, I've, I've heard that argument numerous times. I've heard it from the realist perspective. <clears throat> I am a uh, non-resident senior fellow at Atlantic Council. Several of my colleagues, including Emma Ash, she operates from the realist tradition. I've had her on my podcast where we disagreed over a realist approach uh, towards Russia. And I've seen the, I've written in foreign policy about the left, the far, the far left's approach to Ukraine. When you talk about the, when people bring up the notion that NATO gobbled up Eastern European countries, it's, we could just start off with the facts. It's not, it's not correct. Um, what a lot of folks don't know is that after um, the, the fall of the USSR, and even during that, even during the USSR um, period, uh, there are a number of underground movements that work to uh, lead to the wall falling and eventually to the Soviet Union um, 
uh, collapsing. And so when, when, when they were eligible to do so, Bulgaria, Romania, um, the, the Baltic countries, they were running towards NATO because they knew that individually their militaries would not be able to fend off Russia. And so that was not something that the NATO countries um, did. That's not, that not something that the NATO countries did. That was something uh, that was a result of Russia being an aggressive and brutish neighbor. So the facts are just not there. Um, secondly, people do have legitimate critiques of American um, uh, foreign policy. And for example, the grievance is that America has, has uh, look at their work in South America, look at the Middle East. And some of those arguments are legitimate. They could talk about NATO and the, uh, the inequitable approach of, of use of force, depending on which country you are. So they have legitimate critiques where I push back on is this notion that NATO in this particular instance is the problem. And they clearly are not. Uh, there is also a conversation around just being, um, being a bit more isolationist, which was the case of Trump. So even though you have these two, all these three diverse kind of, uh, of reactions, they all deal with a, they all deal with some very degree of untruth um, in, in assessing who is the real aggressor. Um, I think the the way that I also break it down too is that I am used to being a black person and covering social justice movements, um, being invested myself. Um, I'm used to people telling me that I need to uh, concede to my oppressor. So when I write about Ukraine, um, I speak from the perspective of I know what it feels like when someone tells you to take up abuse and suffer abuse. Um, and you said, hey, what what besides morality uh, ought we, um, you know, is there? I think that morality is the point. And I think that too, too often we, our, our choices are devoid of that. Um, and I think that people, I think that morality is always applied because ultimately you're going to operate in, the, in what, what's in your best interests. And um, harm, if harming others are in your best interest, if, if you still embrace that colonial framework, you're going to do it. Um, but I think that when you look at when, when, when people tell Ukrainians that they need to suffer um, through this and give up more territory, strategically it's bad because why would Ukraine see any space that doesn't belong to Russia? You know, and I just think, uh, you know, I, I think that if the, if, if the stories were reversed, um, I mean, you know, France, Germany, whoever, would not, you know, wouldn't dare cede any of their land if it didn't belong to the person that's trying to take it. Uh, there's some basics to this, but ultimately, what I fear and what I worry about is that people will take their very legitimate grievances, i.e. with NATO, and come up with um, reactions that are not germane to the issue, which is Russia the, is the aggressor, not NATO is the, you know, the, the convoluted party that um, you know, is just is, is causing chaos around the world. And, and in this case, it's Ukraine. It's just wrong. Yeah, I would just add to that, that there is literally not a single country that has ever been coerced to join NATO. Right, right. The clamor of, uh, of countries to uh, join NATO is a function of the degree to which Russia menaces them 
and nothing else. Correct. Yes. Yes. You know, because and, and so when you look at all the countries that joined, the the number one thing that I tell folks is the best thing that Russia could have done after 1991 was just improve its just improve its country internally. You know, um, and the leadership afterwards for a wide range of reasons, particularly Putin, did not do that. And so Putin, his his he Putin operates under um, a similar framework that Donald does, that he looks to the past for glory. And, and and looking at, listening to Putin's speeches leading up to the war, um, it was this whole thing of returning Russia back to the greatness of our USSR days. And he has, there was nothing in the future that he spoke to. Um, and that is an ongoing theme that not, and that not only started at the beginning of this war, but even like, you know, like a few summer, you know, summer after summer, I think last year he wrote that a historical analysis of Kiev Rus. So I think was, I believe it was last summer. But, you yeah, know, for those who don't know, the Kiev and Rus is the uh, the original, uh, depending on one's perspective, Russian or uh, yeah. state uh, in the medieval period in uh, based in Kiev. Correct. Yeah. So I think so ultimately he we we really have to have a a dialogue about what security means to us and if we're and if our, i think again that the administration could do a better job of discussing that because right now a lot of people don't know why we are supporting ukraine i think it's obvious to us and those who are listening but i think there needs to be more engagement and i think once that starts you'll start to see more um you're going to still have people who disagree and have their own views, but I think that the administration will be able to get the people behind it and they'll be less confused and less persuaded by mistruths such as NATO uh, forcing uh, member states into membership and that they're the problem as opposed to the Kremlin. I think that's right. And I also, I also think uh, there's actually a really powerful piece of evidence here that the broad spectrum of the American population almost irrespective of party, gets this, which is that, you know, Biden's approval rating is somewhere in the mid-30s. And nonetheless, the uh, broad-based support for U.S. policy in Ukraine causes Congress to pass overwhelmingly this $40 billion package you know, and even a, like a, the, a president who has historically low approval ratings facing an ugly midterm environment is nonetheless able to get done what he needs to get done in the Ukraine space. And that, I think, speaks to the fact that at some level, American politicians and American voters do understand that it is like you almost unique in our lifetimes that morality and our interests are so perfectly aligned as they are in this situation. Yeah, and Addie, yeah, here's the thing. Yes, yes, correct. Uh, but I think the, going back to legitimate critiques of, uh, of folks who question why we're in Ukraine is that when you talk about the morality um, in, in the moment aligning, the critiques are that America and its participation is morally, you know, morally inconsistent, which is true. Okay, and I think that we all can think of a number of cases in which America could have taken action and did not. Yeah, they, um, oh, the morality and our do not always align. 
Right. <laughs> they don't always align. And again, it's, it's morally inconsistent. Many oftentimes, it can be morally inconsistent, and which goes back to my original point is in order for us to avoid these types of uh, situations where you have such fractures is that you, I, I think that for American foreign policy ought to be morally um, inconsistent. I mean, morally consistent. One of the things that I'm doing for my podcast this year is um, to, I'm, I'm working on a whole series on genocide and what will be included in that series, uh, the conversations uh, with Ukrainians, people from the continent of Africa, uh, for example, and from from Asia, who could talk about their own genocide experiences. And so the, the, the point of it is that I'm going to be focused on Ukrainian uh, genocide, what's happening, what's happening now. But in order to focus on those voices that have not been amplified uh, prior to this, I, I want to kind of do some correction in the discourse about um, bringing up Ukraine, but also talking about the other atrocities in the world, because, again, that moral inconsistency is something that people can as a legitimate hold that people could that, that people can point out. But um, I think that it will take generations for, um, uh, you know, whoever whoever is president to really uh, set the course of what does new security mean? Because I think right now the money is much easier to send than the troops. And I know that sounds pretty simplistic, but I, I genuinely believe why that was. Yeah. Well, if you ever in the context of that podcast want to have a conversation uh, with uh, a Jew who's spent a lot of time thinking about and uh, getting tired of Holocaust exceptionalism, uh, Call me up anytime, um, yeah, 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 okay. be, be, because I I have thought about I have spent I can't tell you how much time thinking about the senses in which, you know that world that 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 exceptionalism in which I grew up steeped has and doesn't have merit, and uh, and I think I think the I think there is there's a lot of truth in it and there's also a lot of of uh pardon me bullshit in it and um and i think it's we are now two generations away from it and it's time to revisit some of some of the exceptionalism even while we uh preserve other aspects of it i think it's a very interesting subject um, you know, and, and I, and I, and I think it has, you know, I was an adult before I learned the word Holodomor, you know, and that's, and I learned it before a lot of other people, you know, but, uh, that's, uh, my, my roots. I mean, I'm, I'm an Ashkenazic American Jew with, I, I guess my family's my various components of my family were all here in the 1890s. They're mostly Polish and Russian uh, emigres, but you know there's some uh, Romanian. You know it's the usual the usual Ashkenazic mongrel mix. Um, but but the point is, you know, we always grew up with a sense that 
yeah, something had happened with Armenians, but it was different. Something happened in the Middle Passage, but it was different. Something happened in Ukraine, if people even knew about that, but it was different. And something happened in Cambodia and in Rwanda, but it was different. Um, and I think I think it's time to have a pretty serious conversation about the ways in which these things are and are not different, because I think we 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 get some very profound things wrong with the insistence on 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 the uniqueness of the Holocaust. We get some things right, but we get some things you know, the, the, the Nazis were particularly good at it and particularly organized about it and weirdly obsessed with it. But I, I think we get more wrong than right um, with the insistence on 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 the um, on, on not comparing and not and not thinking about the Holocaust in relationship to other stuff that was going on at the same time, particularly you know, the Holodomor takes place six years, seven years before the Holocaust starts in earnest, and they are in dialogue with one another, um, both mechanically and in terms of, you know, idea exchange between to murderous totalitarian regimes. And I think we just make a mistake if we don't think about those as as a dialogue, you know, these conversations in dialogue with one another, Hitler was impressed with what the Turks had managed to do to the Armenians. He he was not aware of he was not unaware of it. We should not be unaware of it either. But you know, one of the things I'll add to that is, in order for us to have a healthy dialogue about these systems, um, particularly from the American context, is that you do have to suspend. Uh, your, your ideas of American exceptionalism. I, for example, uh, I, one example is I talk about in a book I'm writing. It's a, a memoir, uh, Black Man on the Step, and it it's a, it focuses on my growth and my development of um, living in the Eastern Europe as a as a Black American. But one of the ways that I articulate my experience about redlining is, you know, I talk about Detroit in the session, and. Um, what it was like uh, listening to my grandparents talk about the ways that Detroit was carved up and the oppression that was that resulted in that 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 I lived in, and I look at the ways in which um, you know the Russian Empire, the USSR, um, carved up countries, and, and do some comparing with uh, you know with, with a, that with redlining in the United States. And again, it doesn't have to be an exact carbon example but i do find that oppression oppressive systems have many similarities and i think that people understand themselves through um you know being sympathetic to people's um um journeys and trajectories and in order to do that though again you have to look at america as a as one of those states that have oppressed others that's been a challenge i found um in the think tank spaces uh, in dc but again coming from a black american who is used to um, being, you know, having being harassed by the cops, uh, I'm going to look at America differently than others. But I think that my personal experience has given me the capacity to have these conversations. We are going to go to audience questions. If you have a question, uh, request to speak, and I will bring you in. Uh, I remind you to keep yourself muted. If you don't, I will do it for you. 
Uh, Ev Gamong, you have the first question today. Thanks. Um, after the Russian invasion, there were stories of um, racial, ra racial discrimination at the borders, like black people being refused at borders crossing. Can you talk about that from your perspective? Thank you very much for that question. When I initially was in, uh, during the war, I was at the, um, I was with the Territorial Defense Unit, and so I wasn't doing border reporting. What I will say is that there are stories uh, that happened during these first seven to 10 days. Um, and I heard my own stories of people dealing with discrimination at the border. Um, now, I think it was a matter of the people who I spoke to, uh, they also told me that, and I'm saying this because there are some stories I'm following up on about this. The, the, the thing about that story is that the discrimination wasn't just specific to the border. So you have people who say that depending on if they go to Germany, for example, how difficult it is for them to get um, any treatment um, or any services um, for refugees, um, suggesting that Ukrainians, quote unquote, white ones were getting more um, access than Africans. Um, and I've talked to people who said they experienced racial hostility in their own host countries. So I think the main, I'm, it's some stories I'm working on, but the main takeaway is that this just was not specific to, um, you know, the border of Ukraine. Walter Leck, the floor is yours. Thanks, Benjamin. Hi, Trill. Hey. Um, hey, my question would be, um, first of all, I wanted to like build upon the thing that you discussed, what it's something else about morality. But prior to that, uh, could you reflect a little bit about those first weeks when you were in Kyiv? We were all distressed, but specifically people who were in Kyiv in the city that was at risk of encirclement. They were specifically distressed. And how your perception of safety and security changed, specifically regarding how people on the ground reacted to what was happening and what they did to basically build up defenses? Good. Thank you very much for that question, Walter. Uh, no, for many of us, it was the first time being in a war situation. It was scary. Um, when you wake up in the morning to explosions, um, and you don't know, you don't have any depth of field of how far are, you know, who's, what the explosion, you don't know what, you don't know what weapon is firing. Um, it was, it was terrifying. I know for the first four days I was in shock and people saw me on television um, doing interviews and actually um, delivering coverage, but I was in a state of shock and some of those days are like a blur and I have to go back to photos that I took and interviews that I did in order to even remember um, what I did in those particular days, as far as the people, um, several of whom I've, I, uh, many of whom I helped to ferry across the country and and across to the EU border, um, you know, safety. Um, one of the main things that we feared was getting hit by a cruise missile, um, because during those days, you know, you, you're probably a block away from a building that was hit. Um, also. One of the first families I helped to leave the uh, leave Ukraine, they were stuck in a basement uh, for three days, and then afterwards they uh, they they emerged. And we um, during our four, pretty much four day journey from Kiev to um, I think Slovak border, um, they were literally following us around like ducks, right? I mean, because again, no one knew it's you know, it's, it's fate basically. Um, 
and you can do all everything right or just something random because um, you don't control where the missiles are coming. Um, another thing is that um, there were legitimate fears that some um, that at checkpoints people you know there, you know some Russian um, people may have infiltrated um, territorial defense so everybody was on edge and I think after the first two weeks people got used to it um, but it was um, and then I think for me another and I'll close out toughest thing for me was to support my friends whose parents or whose loved ones were in occupied territory and waking up every morning with these guys and looking at them pick up the phone and try to call their parents um, and trying to find out if the people if their if their sisters are dead and it's something that I carry with me to this day and you know I've actually gone to a therapist to talk things through but um, it was your, your 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 safety is based on you doing everything right and also being lucky. Auntie Rua Conan, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, I actually have two questions, if I may. You may. Thank you. Uh, so, Terrell, thank you so much for uh, being here and answering our questions. Uh, so, you kind of touched on this already. Uh, do you think that, what do you think of the uh, level of uh, awareness within uh, the uh, policy uh, makers in, in, and diplomatic corps in the, in the United States about uh, the history of Ukraine? And uh, do you think that uh, better awareness of Ukraine's past uh, would uh, create better prospect for, uh, for, for the longevity of uh, support for the Ukrainian cause? Thank you. So, first question. I think that there is a, um, I think that right now people understand Ukraine better than they did again back in, during the Obama period. In regards to understanding the history of Ukraine, so much of this field is based on Russia and then everyone else. So I know that I went to a, um, I have a, there's an annual conference that I attend. It's called the Association of Slavic East European Eurasian um, Studies. But it's, for a while, it was very heavy Russia focused, I think now we're experiencing in the field that people are actually um, focusing on other countries that don't have a Russia, they're not Russia-centric. Um, I think that I think that people are getting better with this, but it's a challenge because even in our own country, we struggle with historical memory when it comes to minority groups. Um, and doing that for another country, I think is a bit um, that, that I think that's an ongoing conversation that deals again with communicate communication and messaging, which is something that I think the administration hasn't done the best job of. Your second question, Auntie. Thank you. So, um, uh, you we all we kind of touched on Turkey just a little bit there already, but uh, do you think that uh, Turkey is posturing with regard to the uh, NATO ascension process of uh, Finland and Sweden? Do you think that the U.S. has already played all the trump cards it can, or is there someone someone else so, something else to do? Or also with regard to uh, this uh, process being uh, also in a way tied to the tied to what's happening in Ukraine right now. So let me be honest by saying that over the last few days, as I've not been keeping up with Turkey as closely 
as I should. I do have an answer, but on the fear of not being answering it accurately based on current information, I will pass on that one. A very honorable answer. Uh, Guillaume. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I believe so. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Brilliant. Hi, Tyrone. Well, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time. Sorry if I missed uh, some stuff. Unfortunately, I wasn't uh, here for the whole uh, for the whole space. Uh, I was just uh, I was just wondering because it's something that has been mentioned on Twitter and that I have mentioned, and my dear colleague and friend Bryce Wilson has mentioned as well. <clears throat> but I don't think you've addressed um, the question of the fundraising that you did rather early in the war when you uh, basically asked your followers to raise around twenty thousand dollars, if I'm not mistaken, to allow you to work in Ukraine for the next few months, and then. Uh, roughly a month and a half afterwards, uh, you left Ukraine and you basically, you basically denied any uh, claim for accountability, telling the people that wanted to know where the money went could, and I quote, kiss uh, the south end of a northbound horse. So that was my first, that was the first question. And the second is about uh, an intervention that you did on CNN in early April, wearing a, a frankly stunning um, piece of Western Ukraine clothing that you then went on to sell. And initially, the first tweet mentioned that you would only uh, give 10% of the charity of the proceeds of that sale. And then you corrected it to 30%. Don't you feel that's slightly exploitative um, to be selling traditional Western Ukrainian clothing in the middle of what, well, basically amounts to a genocide and giving, uh, giving away only 30% of the proceeds and especially blocking everyone on Twitter that they mention it? All right, I think we've got the gist of the questions here. Yeah. I'll do both. Any but, thoughts in response? Oh, so the the second one, that's the media one with the clothing. Do I feel exploitative? No. The 10% was a mistake. Also, I was there to run a business. There's nothing exploitative about a business. So, nope, that's the first question. It's not exploitative because I have Ukrainian support. Secondly, the first one about the funding. Oh, yeah, I definitely did raise money um, to support work that I'm doing there. And... I definitely raised it and I did it for work that I am doing. And two, my leaving the country had my own particular reasons. And I don't have to let anyone know what my personal involvement was, um, my personal reasons for leaving. I'll actually be returning back in October. I'm not a 501c3. So, no, I don't owe anyone um, an explanation behind that other than the fact that I am working on the things that I am working on. So... Just to be clear, you never promised anybody you were going to be in Ukraine or not in Ukraine on any particular day or month. You yeah. promised you were going to be doing work and asked for support for that work. Is that I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think ultimately you're going to always have, I mean, I'm not the only person who raised money on social media. And ultimately, if people feel whatever their view is of me, that's what you're going to feel. But I think, and I think another thing for fair, uh, fairness, I am, and I think most people who are journalists, that's all they do, right? And so before I went to Ukraine, one of the things I was going to do is start a tourism company. And obviously that's not going to happen. So I have other interests beyond journalism. And in addition to the clothing, which the deadline I haven't even started yet, um, that was just one of the things that I worked on. And, you know, there's also a call for people to continue to invest in Ukrainian business. And so, 
you have this war, but after it ends, even during, even while it's going on, uh, business needs support there. And so people have some issue with it, and that's fine. Uh, on the most part, people don't. So, Fair enough. Uh, we got uh, three more questions I want to get through. Uh, and the first one uh, is from Mr. Picklepass. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Thank you, uh, Benjamin and Terrell. Uh, so my question for uh, for Terrell was, um, he was talking about the people who are asking Ukraine to give up uh, territory, uh, which is very uh, unfortunate to even talk about. Right. But uh, the, the, um, I don't know if you knew, uh, like, how could you tell us how those people who are in occupied territory live? And is it fair to just give them away to them? It's not just land, it's people on this land. Like, So do, do you know how do Russians treat Ukraine? Do they treat them as if they're Russians, like they think? or as an inferior uh, race, basically, like what you were uh, discussing? Right. So le- leading up to the war, uh, my, my, my analysis of it is that there's, all, there's, been, there's always been this degradation of, of being Ukrainian. And so I, the way I compare it is, you know, in the United States, you're a person of color, you're a black person, you're, um, you know, you are discriminated against because you're black. With the Ukrainians... Putin's attitude is Ukraine just does not exist. You're, you know, you're 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 a part of the Russian hood, right? And it's just it's another form of erasure, um, ethnic cultural um, erasure. And if you've been getting these messages year after year after year after year after year, it builds extreme resentment. Um, and I think that Putin, you know, one of the things that people missed during one of his major speeches. And I don't, and I think it's because in the United States, you're not getting the whole thing, you're getting clips. But Putin said very racist things about Crimean Tatars, essentially calling them, um, Tatars calling them, calling them, um, you know, Islamic terrorists. So when, when I talk about the racism of Putin, it's not just directed towards the quote unquote white Ukrainian. Um, he said many things about ethnic minorities, including Crimean Tatars. And so he, you know, in this language, it's very clear um, that he looks at them as less than human. And if you look at some of his writings, and particularly that of Russian state television, it's abundantly clear. And if you continue to piece one broadcast after another, sniffers of Smith's speeches after another, it's very clear, in my view, that Putin has a, 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 a very racist um, attitude towards Ukrainians and I also um, back that up by the fact that so many unions themselves expressed that to me. I will also point out that he uh, clearly, in my judgment anyway, had a very racist attitude toward Barack Obama. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he, uh, if you read the accounts of their meetings, uh, this is somebody who does not have uh, uh, let's just say conventionally uh, modern attitudes about race in in the strict white black context either. But you uh, know, um, I had a talk with um, I, earlier this year. I had, a, I had Michael McFall on my podcast, and he uh, recalled a story of he and Biden negotiating um, with Putin, and I forgot exactly where they were. And they were going back and forth, and then Putin just stopped, and he looked, and he looked at uh, McFall, and said, "Oh, they were arguing over Georgia. You know, they were arguing over Georgia, um, the country of Georgia." For those who are listening, um, 
And Putin ran his fingers across his face and said, you know, the problem with you Americans is that you all think we're alike and that we're the same, but we aren't. And he and my and McFall recalling that to me said that um, the way, you know, Putin always describes things in very ethnic terms. You know, sure, you know, the Georgians are part of the USSR or whatever, but it's the Ukrainians. It's like they are a part of like this larger, you know, Russo white Slavic um, race. And with Ukrainians, if they're not a part of that, then that kind of limits their reach. You know, so Putin has always been that type of person. I thought it was a really interesting thing that he said during my talk with him, you know, with him all. Tim Boom, you get the uh, penultimate question today. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Terrell, I've been following you for a while. So thank you for all your coverage on everything Ukraine and just everything else. But so my question is, um, so to kind of preface this, I have a lot of family members that lived and fought through the troubles in uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. So how in, you know, it's only been six, seven months, which seems like it's been longer than that. How are, do you think like somebody kind of asked earlier about people in, you know, occupied Ukraine, how are the Ukrainian, you know, resistance fighters feeling? And then on the other side, how do you think the Russian fighters, especially with how many different ethnicities there are in Russia? I mean, are there a lot of people just fighting out of fear or, you know, just how do you think they are doing overall as well? Well, I have not, um, I'm, I'm not going to speak to uh, the fighters per se. I haven't spent as much time uh, for working on them. In regard, I can speak to what I have read about Russian morale um, and people who I talk to directly. Um, but but the thing about the, the issue is that the Ukrainians understand why they're fighting the Russians the, and the Russians do not have a moral... Um, they don't have a moral calling to the same degree that the Russians do because the Ukrainians are fighting for their land. Um, and the thing with, and then also there is no real timeline on when this all is going to end. One of the things that really surprised the Russian troops was how Ukrainians resisted. Um, remember this war was supposed to be over in less than a week. And it's going on and, and it's going to likely stretch into 2023. And so, so another major thing is that we don't exactly know the degree to which the discontent is happening because there's no freedom of press in Russia. So I think the takeaway is that this is going to be a protracted war and that many Russians, um, we may, you know, we don't know, but many Russians are starting to question why they're doing this. And their capacity, um, their in their fighting capacity is significantly diminished, and so there's a great deal of more demoralization um, in operation in Ukraine's favor. But um, in regards to the, the the extent to which the Russian soldiers are discouraged, um, I honestly don't think that we fully know. Walter, you get the last question today. Thanks, and it's going to be somewhat open-ended, and I'll try not to make it a rhetorical question. And it's uh, just building upon what you said earlier. Obviously, morality is one side of the thing, and the morality side, it's not just about territorial concessions or territories. It's about the people right. who are on those territories and are subjected to genocide, war crimes and genocide. But even though I have a skin in the game, my best friend is on the front line, my family is in Ukraine, 
I always try to like distance myself being here in the States and try to look into it from this point of view. Don't you think there is a, there is a good opportunity to present this idea that, and push this idea essentially, that um, Russian sphere of influence just doesn't end essentially unless they're stopped and pushed back and every inaction, delayed action, inadequate action or just postpones the problem. And the problem that we are seeing right now is just Russia getting stronger in one way or another by grinding down parts of Ukraine, solidifying them as it used to be material, and then using those people to fight against other Ukrainians. And this process will continue further and further if we let Russia to solidify the current gains in a year or two or five, they will use Ukrainians that they essentially occupied and throw them to the next part of Ukraine. And then when it's Ukraine that is done, it's going to be something else. So it's a, it's a problem for essentially all of us, which is delayed, um, not addressed. And the problem eventually grows bigger and bigger as Russia remains the, the threat for global peace and security. Yeah. So, so is, it, is it like reasonable to frame it that way and push that narrative? I, I would, but again, I think that... <laughs> So there, there's so many failures um, and things to reflect on, particularly with Europe's uh, energy dependency on, um, on on Russian gas. Um, I think that two, it's really confusing to the general population to label Putin as this very real genocidal leader that he is, when leading up to this point the sanctions regime that's on the Kremlin should have started and should have been ongoing since 2014 and should have, and, and actually should have been ratcheted up to this level some years ago. But again, you know, the Obama administration and then via the Trump administration, you know, Obama started sanctions. They weren't strong enough. And then Trump was just lost at the wheel. But I think there's this fascination with believing that Putin, that Putin can be talked into some sense. And we know that that has never worked. And then people, Europe has not made the decision that is willing to freeze or suffer via, via energy in order to exemplify all the points, Walter, that you made. And until Europeans really put it on the line to say how much not only is Ukraine worth, but their regional security is worth, then this dance and this back and this diligence is going to continue to happen because as long as you take Putin's resources, then it's going to be very difficult to push the morality question because ultimately you are you are financially dependent on an oppressor. And so you're never going to be able to be as robust in your punishment if you have a semi- I don't know why they call it friendship, but a dependency on them. We are going to leave it there. Terrell, you're a great American. Uh, it's great to meet you. Uh, uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And I appreciate everyone for joining in and listening to the conversation. Thank you all very much. Uh, first, my podcast, Black Diplomats, will resume in the, in, in the second week of August. And we will be doing a series on uh, a series on uh, Ukrainian genocide, 
Uh, it would be a very intersectional conversation with Ukrainians and other uh, ethnic groups that have experienced um, genocide throughout history. And so please uh, go to my um, go go to my Twitter page, uh, follow me, and you'll be updated on that. I will be in Ukraine in the next three weeks, and where I'll be doing more reporting going forward this year and also into next year. Thank you all so much for your support. We will be back. As always, you can uh, uh, find the next episode of Live from Ukraine, uh, which is always pinned to the top of my Twitter feed when they when one is scheduled. Um, uh, you can find all the back episodes on the Live from Ukraine podcast feed. We will be back soon. And thank you all so much for joining us. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>